Hi, Ryan. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm excited. I'm very excited. Ooh. What have we got on the cards today? Well, we are back here again to talk about space above and beyond in some way, as well as a myriad of other things. Uh, You and I host our podcast, Yum Yum Podcast, where we've talked about science fiction shows from Star Trek, Babylon 5, Space Above and Beyond. Now we're doing The Expanse. And Space was a series that uh, we went through. And luckily, thankfully, we've been able to talk to members who were involved in the series, people who were in front of the camera thus far. I'm hoping eventually we can talk to people who were behind it and wrote it as well. But we've been talking to members, cast members, members of the 58th or nearabouts of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very excited about the person we're going to be talking to today. Yes, so am I. You are? You're very excited? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I would hope so. Yes. So, who are we chatting with today? Commodore Ross, Tucker Smallwood. Hello, Tucker. Hi, guys. Good morning. <laughs> and oh, yes. it's very gracious of you to accommodate my schedule. I am, what time is it there? As we record this, it's about eight in the morning. Oh, so. hell, I thought it was two or three. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no not that bad. Not that bad. Not that bad. Of, uh, we're, but we're in the future. So we can tell you <laughs> if anything goes wrong. We can say, watch out, watch out. <laughs> watch out for that. But uh, thank you so much for giving us your time and for joining us here today. I, I must say that we, on our podcast, we, we, we've had to talk about you uh, a couple of times over. We've, we've done some Star Trek Enterprise. We've done some Babylon 5. We've done Space. And as people who grew up watching television, yours is a face that was always popping up, literally... Rachel and I were on holiday a little while ago up to uh, her brother-in-law's house and we were watching the TV and there was an episode of Jake and the Fat Man and there you were, <laughs> being a lawyer, being an attorney. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, look, it's Tucker doing his thing. And it's just one of, those, one of those things where on our show, when we did Babylon 5, we always did a spotlight section where we talked about an actor or an actress that popped up in any given episode. And we did one on you. We talked about your time and like we talked about you a bit. And I even said... If there's any actor I would love to chat with, it's Tucker Smallwood because he's just one of those like that guy actors that appears in in everything. So it, sure. it's just it's just so good to have you here with us. You, you'd better get on with it then, hadn't you? Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. So, you know that's a tagline from a, a an actor I first worked with some years ago. He's passed recently. Nicholas Coster, wonderful guy, and he was shooting a film with Sir Laurence Olivier and being interviewed. And um, the uh, the magazine writer asked him, well, do you have any ambitions? Uh, he says, yes, I hope at some point to be regarded as the finest actor in the English-speaking world. And Olivier was sitting nearby in his makeup chair and said, well, then, old boy, you'd better get on with it, hadn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I love little shows like that. They keep me going. <laughs> Truly. Now, Rachel, how about you uh, get us going? Well, I suppose I want to ask if there's any particular stories that you have from working on Babylon 5. Well, B5 uh, was essentially one of the very first. This was the dawning in my career, and I think pretty much in television, uh, of this golden era of sci-fi. 
and you have so many choices that now it's a little more a superhero world. Um, but um, I had met with, I was shooting a, 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 a video game, a Sony PlayStation game called Agile Warrior. And it was, um, I was the only actor in it. I was the commander and I was, you know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and it's, it was, you know, physically exhausting work um, because there would be, you know, full shot, medium shot, close up, same dialogue. And I had, you know, different uniforms for these different segments. Uh, but the, the the focus, the attention was um, was very wearing. And um, I think I was on my second day and my agents called me and said, there's a series that has a, a commander in it, Tucker. And it, it just seems like something, you you know, you, you, you would fit into nicely and um so why don't you see if these people at Sony will let you go away for an hour or so and and and, and meet with these other guys and I said well, I went to the producers of the Sony game and said there's an opportunity for me they went they've been raving we never thought this game could be this good you are amazing we are so grateful to have you in it and I said thank you and um there's this opportunity for me, and if you could spare me for an hour or so, I could go over and meet with these other people and they thought a minute and said, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, it, it, you know, um, I sucked it up. I didn't poke. Um, there are a lot of ways you can say thank you to somebody. Um, and um, they didn't, you know, they seemed to have a lot of lip service there. But in any case, I finished my job. I went home and I think I slept for 14 hours. My my brain was just exhausted. The focus, the concentration, the intensity of it all. And um, my pager went. This is the days when you had pages. <laughs> you remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. My pager went off, and it was um, my commercial agents um, saying, uh, "Yeah." Yeah, how did it go, Tucker? I brought, I brought, you know, I, I brought flowers and a bouquet of flowers because we, 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 we held Sony up, okay? We, we robbed the train, and I didn't have any problems with that at all. I, I brought in these flowers to my commercial agents, and um, thanked them, and said, they said, um, you know, how did it go? And I said, it went well, you know, it was tiring, but they had, I gotten a call from my my legit agents telling me about an opportunity and. And um, they weren't willing to release me for a, a minute or two to go to meet with these folks. And they said, you should have called us. We would have fought for you. And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of ways to say thank you to someone. Hmm. And cutting them a little slack when they could be in their favor is one of them. Um, but And at that moment, my pager went off. Uh, and it was my legit agent saying, they didn't like any of the people they saw the other day. They'd like to see you tomorrow, Tucker. And the rest is history. <laughs> I went in and met with Glenn and Jim. And um, in truth, if I had gone in that day that I wanted to, uh, I, I don't think I would have been as present because my mind was so full of this commander, you know, and, and the point is I can underplay most of these moments because in essence, Glenn Van Ross was Tucker Smallwood 25 years after the fact. He had my values. He had my rhythms, my energy, 
my sense of humor. And so all I had to do was stay out of the way. Um, and um, it would be just fine. And after I had read for them, they said, we want to do this and this and this and this and this. If you could be available for it. I said, ask me. I couldn't have imagined a nicer situation. They they were so they were so clearly respectful of the traditions uh, of the military. They were so respectful uh, in ways that many other productions aren't. And I remember years thereafter, I would travel back in those days. Their airports would often have a glass encased space in the airport with a recruiting station. Um, and I would walk through these, and men would come, run, women too, would come running out of this little less. We we watch that show every week. I make sure my son watches that show, and it was incredibly flattering. And it was just a tribute to how committed Jim and Glenn were to getting it right. They really had an honest, genuine respect for the men and women who served their country, and it was a, it was I was honored to be part of that. I was honored to talk to the other kids and tell them some realities of life uh, in war uh, to help them help, help them appreciate the values of a scene or whatnot. Uh, and they, Jim and Glenn, would confer with me. How do you think this sounds or feels or you know smells? Um, and uh, so, as I say, uh, of fifty some years of work. I don't think there's any question that's the most affirming role I have ever had on screen. On stage, it might be different, but on screen, I don't think there's, apart from the uh, mission director in contact, I don't think there's anything that comes close to it, really. Mm. Because I was, I was say- essentially getting to play myself 25 years later and look after my people, which was always my commitment when I was in the bush. I was going to say, at this time in your career, there was a ramping up of of being in some science fiction roles. Babylon 5 and Space Above and Beyond, just looking at it on IMDb, are around, like, roughly around the same time. I don't know which you did first, which you did second, and then you would do I, I, some I Star Trek. Meeting, I have the meeting I just described to you with Jim and Glenn, and then I went and shot B5. Oh, wow. So it was that dovetailed. And B5 was a three or four day shoot, as I recall. Claudia and and, and um, what was the lead lead guy's name? Bruce um, Boxleitner. Bruce. They kept me giggling the whole time. They're 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 incredibly witty, fun uh, ensemble, and uh, it was it was just great, great, great fun to work with them. You also in that show, one of the things I really loved about what you did, especially as someone who just is a walk on, you're just in one episode. You did an accent for the character that made him memorable to a viewer like me, where he's just a bureaucratic guy from Earth who's asking a bunch of questions to all of other characters we know. But you had a certain, I don't know if it was your choice or if it was in the script or, or if it was something that the director threw at you to be like, hey, let's let's spice up this character. But you came in with this, this uh, I guess, like African accent going on with, uh, with Ndawi that made him like stand out to us at home, at least. Um. Is it, is it Michael Straczynski, the creator's name? Yeah, yeah, Joe Michael right. Straczynski, yeah. yeah. Michael, um, I, I went to him and I said, I, I like this character very much, but I think I my energy is a little too contemporary to be credible as this guy. I was doing a play 
last year at the Odyssey Theater, A Map of the World by David Hare. And I played uh, a diplomat from uh, Senegal, um, Mr. Ndawi. Um, and um, I said, I'd like to try this. He says, well, I don't know, but well, give it a try. And, he, and he, when you heard it, he liked it because I was clearly comfortable with it. And uh, it just, I, it just, to me, put me into that place in time as opposed to hearing Tucker's sound, you know, and t- just Tucker, what, Tucker in 2075, what? Uh, <laughs> I, I felt more grounded in the character that I was performing. And I was grateful that he allowed me to do it. And I'm grateful that you were able to uh, appreciate the, um, the the added coloration. It's your voice is a huge part of the, the appeal for many people. We when we said to some of our listeners that we were going to talk to you, one of our fans is a huge lover of Enterprise, and he and he just said, "Could you and contact?" He said, "Could you just let Tucker know that he's so good at the line deliveries?" And with with Star Trek, I am curious too of. You got to play like a an alien who is pretending to be a human being, and then you actually got to play like an alien in in the prosthetics. And like mm-hmm. I said, during this time, you were doing a bunch of sci-fi military roles and stuff. But was it uh, like fun or different to be an alien for a change, like to be in the makeup, to be like a Zindi? Well, yes and no. Um, my makeup in Enterprise took two hours to put on in the morning and an hour and a half to take off at night, and it destroyed the tear duct in my left eye and it can't be surgically repaired, which means as moisture forms in my left eye, it pulls and the light catches it, it sparkles. And in a high def world, that's not very helpful. Um, I, um, <clears throat> I had, uh, I lost my father on New Year's day in 98 and, um, a week or two later, I, I woke up and brushed my teeth and spit and missed the bowl. And I looked in the mirror and I realized that I had been stricken with Bell's palsy. And so half of my face didn't move. I looked as though I'd had a stroke. And that took, uh, Enterprise, uh, not Enterprise, uh, Voyager was the first role I had shot in over seven months. Um, in fact, my agents called and said, Trek wants to see you. He's an alien. I said, oh, that's great. I can do that. I sound good. I look like shit. But I sound good. And I said, no, he's an alien that looks like a human being. Oh, shit. <laughs> but I went in and, and and I got the rule. And I was very, very grateful. And then people said, you were so stern and impactful. I said, so my fucking face would do. <laughs> you know, if only half of your face works, you don't push the envelope, okay? Because it's not pretty. And... um because during that time, that summer, I, I didn't know if I'd ever worked again. Uh, and that was, you know, that was a, a bit of a pill to, to swallow because I had more things I wanted to do. I certainly didn't think I'd be able to work in television or film. I love stage, but it's hard to make a living on stage in America. Uh, but in any case, uh, the good news was um, I was able to shoot the role and I survived the role and they didn't hate me. And um, then my career sort of began again, and slowly uh, the acupuncture, which was I, even now I flinch and tear up. Uh, there were, I would go there two or three times a week, and this woman would put pins in my face, and I can't describe to you how much it hurt. I would wake up in the morning crying because I knew what was going to happen in a couple of hours. Mm. 
but I tried everything that I could. I said, I'm willing to do whatever there is to do because I'd like to be able to do some more work. And so that's how, that's how all that came to be. Now, um, the Zindi, the guys were great. I love working with Randy and, 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 and Scott and, um, uh, you know, the, the I thought it was just a very, very interesting concept of six species, one extinct, you know, and a couple of them CGI. I just thought it was really interesting. Um, what I discovered, though, is this is a show that has a Bible and it has the tools. On space, I was kind of given free lance, you know. Uh, we check and say, I said, we might say it this way or, you know, we could do it this way. Uh, you don't change an ah, uh, the, or on Star Trek without getting permission, okay? That's just the way it is. And I would have no problem going across the street and saying, you know, I think this might make a little more flow. I know, I know all characters have a rhythm. And my characters have a rhythm. And if I can put dialogue that wasn't written for me, but written for the character, into my rhythm without subverting the meaning or the intent of the writer, then I think it's a good marriage. You know, you could have had any one of thousands of people to play. You, you chose me. Why don't you allow me to bring what I bring to it? Um, and I had no problem going across, but I was always stunned by that. You know, no, no, you can't go talk to go talk to the producer. Okay, it's just an and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Star Trek is known for being a uh, very strict sticklers, idea, yeah, sticklers for that. Like it's like it's Shakespeare type dialogue where you have to get all of the stuff, and if you are changing it, like you said, you have to walk over and ask stuff. But uh, Rachel, you have a, a question next up. So what do you want to ask, Tuck? Yeah, like that uh, story of the acupuncture and stuff really reflects a, a really great commitment so, to the craft of acting. And I wanted to sort of rewind and ask you at the start, did you fall in love with acting slowly or instantly? Rachel, my therapist and I have been working on that for a while. <laughs> um, I was badly injured in Vietnam. I was, in point of fact, pronounced dead. I crossed over. I, I was out of my body looking around. And um, when I was ready to leave Walter Reed after several months there, I asked them, well, what, what can I expect? How much time have I got? And they said, Maybe five years, maybe maybe ten. We don't know. There's there's no data. People with your injuries don't live. There's just no data. And I said, well, okay. I have decided to become an actor, laying in bed at night at Walter Reed Hospital, thinking, I I don't know how much more time I've got, but I've been given a blessing. Uh, what could I do with this time remaining? And a girlfriend had taken me to see a play in New York City a week before I left for Vietnam. And uh, I had grown up with opera and Shakespeare and Ibsen and, you know, um, I, I knew theater, uh, Escos, but I didn't know modern black theater. And what I saw on that stage was electric. I, I, it just was so exciting to me. It was so immediate. It was so right there, you, you know, 10 feet away from people. And that energy and that the, the the intensity was just so compelling. And I said, God, I'd I'd love to learn how to do that. 
That that would that would make it worth it. I think I could enjoy that for how much time I got. So I I flew out here to UCLA to see about getting an MBA, and the man who taught the program had trained with Sanford Meisner in New York, and I went went to New York uh, to meet with Sandy, and he said I I I want you here in the fall, and I said well then I'll be here in the fall, and um, I I extended for a few months because I couldn't find a a summer job that paid when a, a senior first lieutenant got in the army, and I taught young engineer candidates how to stay alive in the jungle, and then I resigned my commission and moved to New York to study acting, and um, the rest is pretty much history. Um, it was a it was a happy, I don't know, maybe it was I don't know. It it was meant to be. I was a square peg in a square hole. It just made a lot of sense in retrospect, but when most of the people I know who have succeeded in this business, knew at seven that they wanted to be an artist, or eight. <laughs> I figured it out at 25 years old laying in a hospital bed. So that's not the typical path. No, it, it's, um, it is interesting. I always love hearing every actor's uh, experience and journeys coming into the craft because there's this idea of like the traditional, but like so many people, like we've talked with other cast members, found their way in, 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 in a variety of fashions. And with yourself, a lot of your career, especially before uh, space, was appearing in, in one-off roles or minor roles here and there in, in TV. And you told us a bit about uh, how you landed this role and, and the effect it had on you. But as someone who is known for being a, a minor actor in, in, in TV, what was it like to get a, a recurring role? And did you know when you were auditioning and signing up that the character would be someone that would keep popping up in episodes? Jim and Glenn had told me their intentions. I had a rather uncommon route, and they made a point of reminding me of that, to come on as a, as a principal and then become a guest star and then a special guest star and then a series regular. That's just very uncommon. Uh, it was very flattering. I was very grateful. I had found a home. I um, I love the character. I love the ensemble. I love the creative people around me. And uh, it was just a very singular event. But um, there's nothing typical or common about it. Um, I've always... I had come to California in 91. Uh, I had had a wonderful early part of my career in the 70s and early 80s. But I was, I was struggling with PTSD. I didn't know it. Um, at some point, someone handed me a book with a bunch of interviews of veterans and their families and their children. And I would read these two and three page interviews and I'd say, Jesus, I do that. That's what I, that's what I think. That's how I say it. And at that, you know, we're really good at hiding um, from ourselves. It's 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 hard to shrink yourself. Our, our brain is just too nimble. But sometimes we can see a problem in someone else, and so that was very helpful for me. And I, at that point, I become very self-destructive, um, not suicidal, but self-destructive. I I didn't think I deserved to be alive. It's called survivor guilt. A lot of people I cared about didn't come home, and uh, and I did. And uh, at some point, I didn't feel I deserved that good fortune. So I set about trying to destroy things. And 
I was fortunate to be led to a therapist who only counseled veterans and police. He had flown over to Russia, helping them develop pathologies for their Afghanzi, the Russian soldiers that fought in Afghanistan. They came back and they presented with the same issues, alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide, uh, self-hatred. Um, and in a, in, a, in a few months, he gave me back my life. And that was what allowed me to say, let's start a longer again. I've been in the for 20 years. I love it. But, you know, they that's where they keep the cheese out there. Why don't we go out there and, and see what that could be like? And so I moved to California. But I moved there in a much healthier frame of mind. There was a while there. I, I, I did in that period in the 80s a thousand voiceovers. I did a piece of art that has appeared in all the major art museums in the world, the Louvre, the Tate, the MoMA, every modern museum in the world. Uh, and I had forgotten it for 20 years. It was so abstract an experience. I had forgotten I did it until a woman came up to me in the gallery and says, were you in something at the Tate a few months ago? I said, no, I don't remember so. I think I remember that. <laughs> and then I did remember it. It, I the, the experience of doing it was so abstract, like there was nothing to hang it on. To, to There was no category in which to store it. And so it just disappeared. Uh, but it's available online. It's called Good Boy, Bad Boy, um, and it's by one of our eminent modern artists. Um, so California has been lovely. Um, it's really very much like falling asleep in a poppy field and waking up 20 years later. It really is. Tuesday looks like Friday, looks like January, looks like, you know, June. It's just the same. And I've been in this space for 30 years. I bought this several months after the earthquake of 1994. Um, I've never lived anywhere in my life that long, but I've been happy here. It's, it, I feel safe here. Um, but I, I, I think I would probably be rejuvenated with some change. Um, change is often good for some of us, you know, it, it wakes you up. Oh, yes, of course. And your career and your life has had a lot of uh, different things going on, uh, as, you've as you've said. And uh, with, um, with space in particular as well, there is a, there, it is different when we look at, at your roster of work because it's one where you got to stay there for a longer period of time and... Rachel and I would often ask ourselves and talk on, on our podcast about like, what was that like for the actor to be able to... Yeah, how is that dif a different experience staying with Commodore Ross, especially like as you pointed out, he was so much like you to like, was it easy? Was it different? Was it weird going back to those sort of jump in jump out roles after being in space as well well it's, it's just different between being in a family and um you know being kind of a loner um it's again a singular experience in my in, in my estimation i i'm sad as are many fans and other artists that it only had a year of life um as i said those people who found it and appreciated it really loved it and it's work that I'm still very, very proud of. But at the time, it was about the most expensive show on TV, and it didn't have a champion. Uh, HBO was coming along, and there was this, and there was that. And 
you know, Warner Brothers and Paramount wanted it, and um, Fox said, no, no, no. It was dog in a manger sort of stuff. Um, but you know how you know how it all worked out. Um, it was, you know, when you do a play, you're coming in to do the same person each time, um, hopefully finding new, new snow to walk in. But <coughs> when, when I think about what it was like, it was like being adopted. I had a family. Um, you know, it's, it's nice to be a guest star, and it's nice to be appreciated and, and acknowledged, but it's also nice to be part of a family. And relationships grow deeper as you get to know each other over time. And that's very rewarding. It's, that's, that's a very special experience. It's, it's not that uncommon. I don't know what it's like for people that have been on SUV for 20 years. I, I, I can't imagine. I just don't know. You have gone over your past with the military and how this role made you look back and also think about yourself and you have had to play a lot of uh, authority figures, whether they are in the military or they're lawyers or they're this or they're that. And as someone who's a performer, I'm just curious of what is it like as as an actor to have to inhabit those roles that maybe do touch home with you, like do call back? And does it strengthen your connection majorly with a, with a character like Ross, where you you do have that military experience, where you c- can walk up to the writers and and other actors and and lend them your 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 past and your uh, point of view on how things were. I think it's um, again, it's very rewarding. You you could say, well, I was cast in it because ABC. Um, I have these qualities. I know how to do this. I can walk and talk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so that's that's all well and good. If I go in and I play a lawyer, or I go in and play a, a philandering husband, or, or you know, um, that's always fun. It's fun to play someone unlike yourself and try to get into those shoes and bring that person to life. Uh, it's a different kind of fun. So all of these things are, you know, they have their own qualities. They have their own rewards. They have their own challenges. Um, but I have not, as have many actors, had the experience of being in something for four, five, six, seven years. Many of the Trek actors were part of those seven-year niches. And uh, so I don't have any uh, experience of that kind of enduring relationship. I'm happy for them. Um my that just wasn't my path. Um, I I'm a soldier of fortune. I'm looking for the next thing. So space above and beyond really lived in the two worlds of science fiction and also a wartime drama. And we wanted to know if, if are you a fan of sci-fi and of war stories? I learned to read when I was three, and I had a library card when I was five, and I was reading Robert Heinlein and Van Vogel and Asimov and all, all the really fine sci-fi writers as a child. I was raised on sci-fi, um, and so I, I've always loved it. I was delighted to see it. You know, I mean, there was one step beyond, and it was Twilight Zone, just a handful of shows over the years. But somehow in the 90s, just... Because of um, the the um, Star Trek, um, you know, pedigree or lineage, um, suddenly you had things that had ongoing life, 
based upon something that had happened 20 years before. Um, so, you know, timing is everything. Sometimes, you know, the sun don't shine on the same dog's ass every day. But every now and again, things will work out for you. So it, it did. And, and as I say, it's now very much a comic book hero world. But I was grateful for that run. I met lovely people all over the world and um, who shared my appreciation of good sci-fi. And um, so that's been very nice. I remember visiting your country and wishing that I could submit, have spent more time there, uh, getting to meet a young Jessica Alba and um, playing some golf at a lovely links course and uh, uh, admiring some of you going to a couple of blues clubs and, and letting them know, letting them sharing some of my uh, country and Delta blues experience with them. Um, I've, I traveled all my life. I've lived all over the world. I've visited all over the world. And so I, I like that. I like meeting other people and I like um, discovering other cuisines and other ways of being. When we were doing our podcast, Ross was a character that we really uh, got drawn to. As as I said, we both are children of television. We watched it a lot, and you were one of those faces that were very familiar. And when we were going through it, it was like, oh, well, we've, we've got like pedigree here because uh, Tucker Smallwood is there. And as the series went along, your character got to evolve and utilize some more of the stuff that I've seen from your career as well. And you were talking about how you were able to have a bit of a relationship and some input with the writers. And for us, one of the biggest moments of the show where the show really like flipped for joyous stuff is when you got to grab out the guitar. Like the show was so stern and serious, but then you get to grab out the guitar and it's like, oh, the It's a big tonal shift. It, it's like the characters have downtime and have mm-hmm. hobbies. And, and, and they have they have lives. They have real lives, totally apart from their marksmanship or their command presence or all the rest of that. Uh, again, that's just a, a gift of the relationship I was fortunate to find with Glenn and Jim. Um <clears throat> We would talk about backgrounds. Um, my my character, as again, as I said, myself, um, 25, 30 years later, uh, my values, my concern for my people, my um, my inability to mask some things, my my caring about them. We're going to get the job done, but um, I'm not going to sell you down the river. I will be looking out for you. This got this has got to be done. But I will be looking out for you. Uh, and we had a Navy advisor because I was a Naval Commodore. And um, <clears throat> I remember they asked him, well, would, would Commander ever play his guitar? Oh, no, no, no. Come on. He would never do anything like that. And I said, guys, you can't ask this guy shit like that. You can ask him about ribbons and uniforms and stuff like that. You can't ask him about character qualities. That's absurd. Of course he wouldn't. They're not human beings. They're archetypes. And so once we had that straightened down, they said, okay, don't just don't tell the Navy advisor about this shit. And I was I was grateful for that because I I I can't I have no interest in playing two dimensional people. I play whole people. They're not they can be flawed, but they're you know all of us have other qualities and some of them may be 
contradictory uh, and some of them may be a little off the wall, but, you know, that's what makes human beings human beings. It's also a, a, a entertainment. This series had to blend, like, the, 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 the military stuff, the real stuff, and also keep an awareness of entertainment for the viewers at home. And so Ross having the guitar really lent entertainment to us. And the fact that it... it kept popping back up and eventually we got to hear the guitar's name and and, and Ross is all picky about people touching the guitar and it just added more and more and more stuff than just you at the start of the show being the guy who's telling them off for doing the wrong thing and you being angry at the corporate guy for ordering you to do stuff you don't want to do. Like that stuff's great The show got to evolve but so did Ross as an individual. Yeah, a whole whole person rather than someone who is relatively two-dimensional. That's, you know, uh, that was my joy. I don't know if I were doing SUV, maybe I wouldn't have that roundness. You know, we just want you to be strong and certain, okay? And no doubt about it, if you say it, it's going to happen. And so let it so let it be written, so let it be done. Do you- uh, that's not very interesting. I don't mind getting paid a few hundred thousand dollars each week, but that's just not very <laughs> interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that's a different kind of work. Yeah, Joel Joel did some Law and Order, and he was talking about that and how it's very much like there are certain roles, especially where you are in the industry, that are journeyman roles where you are there to give the exposition, to help move the plot along, and to do that. And You're blocking for the stars, okay? You're yeah. the <laughs> and And Ross started that way, but at the end of the first episode you're in, we really loved there was that moment, it's just no dialogue, of Sewell, the corporate guy, trying to shake your hand, and you just look at him and walk off. And it's like that simple little touch told us at home, like, oh, there's more to this character. Like, this isn't just the guy who's going to hand them down the mission and say, you did bad on that. And uh, yeah, like you said, a a full rounded person, which when sometimes- And one that wouldn't sell them down the river. Yeah. One who would not leave them behind. There was whole episodes about that. But uh, Rachel, what do you have uh, up next for us? Um, I guess I want to talk a bit more about the sort of the family, the ensemble of Space Above and Beyond. And by its nature, they had to be in sync with each other. And we were hoping to hear a little bit more about like your working relationship with the rest of the cast and crew. There were a lot of scenes where I got to work with all of them. I think probably James and I had the most scenes uh, together. <clears throat> but uh, I, I would I would get to see Rodney and Joel and and, and um, uh, Shane. My gosh, what is uh, Kristen? Kristen, yes, and you help me, help me. I, I'm I am as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not old I. Okay, I, I I get to see them, of course, but I wouldn't necessarily have scenes with them. Uh, and by and large, when I did have scenes with them, I was probably tearing somebody a new asshole. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> again, it's it's you know father, it's father knows best. I'm sort of a, 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 a an authority figure to them, but I'm I'm their commander. But they are marine pilots. I'm a naval commodore. You know, it's it's a very interesting dichotomy. Those those two things, um, and in terms of. Who has command authority? Well, I suspect uh, they report to, to James, to, you know, um, and James mm-hmm. reports to me. And, um, you know, that's that's the way it rolls. Um, 
I, 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 the, the eclecticism of the, of the writing, um, you know, we had a number of different writers and they all brought their own special interests and skills to bear. And some of those scripts were just incredibly unlike any of the other scripts. They stood on their own. But you, you didn't have to watch the entire series to appreciate the work in this, in this you know, scene. Um, and got to meet many of those writers. They're very, very cool, interesting people. Um, I, I, I do miss it. I had to, I had to uh, teach myself to wean myself, realizing, Tucker, that that was not a day at the beach. Um, that was unique. Uh, such things do not come along often. Be grateful, and I, and I am grateful for the relationships that endured to this day with James, with Joel, with others. Um, and I'm grateful for a, a piece of work that is that continues to be uh, appreciated by people uh, discovering it for the first time. I think a lot of our special effects, which are like you know a model A or model T in today's you know special ops world, I think a lot of them still hold up pretty good. Hmm. We were talking to Morgan Weiser last time, and he discussed a bit about what you said about how you and James got to be a bit separate a lot of the time. And even Morgan said, like, there was, just, there was this reverence for Tucker because he was, our, he was our top dog, he was our guy. And even Morgan said, like, he regretted a little bit not being able to ask you and talk to you about your military background and history because you were there to talk to. You were someone who had gone through stuff and it was something that, you know, going back probably would have done. And for us fans of the show, Commodore Ross and McQueen's friendship and camaraderie is really one of the major hearts of the show, like one of the drawing points. Rachel and I are fans of those characters. Ross is my favorite character. McQueen is Rachel's favorite character. And it would always come back to if there's conversations between those two it would often be the best stuff for us. I was just curious, what do you think it is about that particular dynamic that works well for people? And what about it as a performer did you get out of it too? I, I, James's character was a very uniquely eclectic character. This He's a pod. Um, he's a warrior. He's a philosopher. That's a very, that's a very complex um, combination of qualities. And he is my subordinate. He is a warrior. I have his respect because he knows the second season would have been my backstory. It would have been how we met and what I used to do before I was the old man sitting in the in the CP uh, when I used to go out on missions myself. That would have been great fun, uh, but that was not to be. I'm a little sad, and I've never known that. Morgan and I've always had a good communication. Uh, I, I'm sad that he felt that there were things he would like to have spoken to me about that he didn't, and I'm not sure why, because others in the test could have told him, yeah, Lucas talked to me about that kind of stuff. I think when you're a young actor, yeah, especially with him being the yeah. lead guy, it's just like, there's yeah, so many things I, you have You're to... worried about it being a touchy subject, maybe? Oh, yeah, but I don't know. I, those guys talk... I, 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 that's what Morgan said, okay? Oh, I, yeah. I honestly thought that Morgan would have had the most important career thereafter. That's what, that's that was my thinking when we shot it. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm I, I hope he's well. I, I like him very much and his dad, but um, I thought he would come out of that 
for whatever reason. He reminded me of young Lonnie Cliff. Yeah, that's definitely what uh, the intention feels like it was, especially with interviews and audio commentary tracks with Glenn and Jim about the character and about Morgan's performance. And um, like we said, Ross and McQueen are really the, the two characters that just slot into place nicely for us. And I think a part of it too is you two are the leaders you're the two leading, like... Yeah, you can't show yourselves to the 58th, but you can share with each other things that you can't... The burden of being a commander, of sending people out who are not going to come back. That's right. Those are, those are special, unique responsibilities of command. And in, in war, they are particularly weighty. And so you would find someone with whom you could share your concerns, that's appropriate. Um, that may will um, advise you, but no, he won't be talking to a, 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 a Marine captain or, you know, a pilot or whatnot about things like that. And you're quite right. You wouldn't be. It would be, un, it would be unprofessional. It would be conduct on becoming an officer. It would be, you know, just I, as a commander, I didn't go up to my snuffies and, you know, talk about those things, but they knew I would move heaven and earth for them. And that was the important thing. The first night on my team in the bush, I took our wounded outside our wire. Um, anybody that's been in war who knows what perimeter wire is understands. But I had gotten there five hours before, and there was no chopper pad inside the wire. And if we didn't get them out by daybreak, they were going to die. And so I said, no, that's not going to do. We're going we're to get them out. And from that point, my soldiers always fought for me, always, because I knew they knew I cared about them as human beings, and I would do what I had to do to take care of them. Um, and it's not words; it's not words. You, you know, you're judged on deeds. With Ross, like you said, there are those emotional, poignant things that maybe a real life officer wouldn't be becoming of, but in a television show. You have to give those to the viewers at home. Like one of the big episodes for us is is Sugar Dirt, where really it's it's a big Ross episode where we're seeing you struggle with the weight of having left people behind for strategic reasons elsewhere, but the burden still remains. And even at the end of the episode, you apologize. You say like, "I'm sorry. Like I I could have done more and everything." And it just hits so hard because. I think for, for people out there watching at home, military figures can be a bit distant. They can be austere. They can be two-dimensional because that's an idiom. That's a not a metaphor. It's an idiom, and I don't think it's a very interesting idiom. Uh, I think it lacks imagination. Uh, you find a way without destroying the reality um, to express um, not with words, but expressed with deeds and with behavior, someone's concern for his people. Um, it would be okay for me to go off by myself and shed a tear for somebody that didn't come home. I wouldn't do that in front of my people. That would lack command presence. Uh, that might, you know, demoralize them or whatnot. And you would question, has he lost it? Can he still function as, as a leader here? But it doesn't mean you were unfeeling. And yet I discovered in the hospital in Saigon and in Japan a humanity that had been missing for months and months before that. When I wept when I realized I was alive, 
I realized it was the first time I had wept in a long time. And that was the whole person. When I say I was brought back to life, I was brought all the way back to life. I And I promised myself I will never forsake that. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm going to feel because to feel is to be alive. Space was a very emotion-heavy series. What you just described, there would be many episodes where characters would go through their own version of that. Like West had a whole entire episode, Stay With the Dead, that was very much about going through such experiences as well. And that was like one of the, I guess, like truths of Space Above and Beyond is that the soldiers and even the higher-ups do have emotions, do have feelings. They aren't just there for the sake of, of duty and honor and loyalty. Like there's a human... Uh, there's a human toll to it all. And Rachel has one of the big questions that we, we have to ask uh, for every actor who appears in a show. And Yeah, it's a simple one. Uh, what's your favorite episode of Space Above and Beyond? Well, Sugar Dirt jumps to mind. I mean, I just remember Sugar Dirt. I love the writing. I love the idea. Uh, it, it was imaginative and I thought engaging and they had lots of different colors and levels so that would be certainly one of my favorites um, I haven't watched the last four or five episodes in a, in a while in a few years um, so there might be one of them in there that that I care about and then there were people that encountered during the run you know Gail O'Grady my god the most beautiful skin I've ever seen. Uh, there were some, there were some wonderful guest stars over the years. Um, oh, surprise! We haven't talked about Australia. I got to come to your country and and spend time with your people. And uh, yeah, Sunshine Coast, right? No, 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 he wasn't in the pilot. I remember. So, oh, so what was your what was your experience? Right. Hmm? So, what was your reason yeah. and experiences for for coming down to Australia? You have touched upon it, but uh, tell uh, us I all. Had, I I had been shooting a film called Most Wanted, and I was the I think police captain of Los Angeles, and there was John Voight and uh, a, a, a few other actors, and um, I I was called by a casting agent. We, we we've got a role. This character is a blues legend. He's been on the run for a number of years. Um, it's going to shoot in Australia, and I, really. Um, and I happen to play a kind of music that is not that common. Um, and so I said, well, I'd love to do that. Uh, two weeks, sure. I was on a hiatus anyway. And so we called the people that most wanted and I said, we're just going to go to Australia for a couple weeks. No, 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 don't let him go. We might decide. He's, Fuck you, you might decide. <laughs> <laughs> And what a neat experience that was, but my God, I'm flying there and they haven't given me any music. And I'm a blues legend. And they're not gonna pay uh fees, you know, to record music that's in the that's not in the public domain. So I said, well, I've got, I, it's not just I play this stuff. i got to play it well. What am I? And I sat there on the plane, I, 18 hours, right? Uh, and the students kept bringing me um, rum. I like rum. I don't like the Bundesberg so much, but I do like rum. <laughs> uh, and uh, I realized in the, in, the, in the best, you know, um, traditions of bluesmen, 
they would go to a juke joint and listen to somebody else play a song, and they would lift those lyrics and lift that melody and, and make it their own. And so I started writing verses to blues progressions. And uh, by the time I got to Australia, I they took me off the plane, and they didn't take me in my hotel. They took me to a musical recording studio. I'd been up 18 hours, and there had maybe 10 or 12 guitars laid out on the floor. I picked one Gibson that was very similar to Rosalind, and I sat down, and for the next several hours, I recorded the entire track of that one-hour show. And then I went home and fell asleep for about 15 hours. Um, but that that was the deal. So everything I played in the show, I recorded that first day I arrived because that was the musical track. And then at the end, when they put on the show, people would say, Tucker, I thought you played the guitar in the show. I, I said, well, yeah, I did. Uh, no, we looked at the credits. The only two people that listed on music were these two guys. They played the theme music. Um, and I said, well, gee, that's kind of weird. Uh, I can't imagine why they would have done that, but that's what they did. And nobody ever came up and said, hey, thanks for writing all that music that we got to use for free. But payback is mother. Uh, <laughs> when it got distributed all over the world, they went looking for somebody who could play the music and they couldn't find it. <laughs> so, so we got we got payback. <laughs> so where in Australia did you have to go to? It was, it was the Gold Coast. Uh, uh, I, I loved being there. Is a, a lot of wonderful, a, a lot of attractive extras with their cell phones that I, you know, I, I think even getting lunch and maybe fifty cents a day. I don't know, but it amazed me. How can all these kids afford cell phones? <laughs> Uh, I thought it was interesting. But so uh, there I was for uh, two weeks and uh, just had a wonderful time. And I do hope, you know, someday they go back. I, I miss my Murphy's Oatmeal Stout. <laughs> um, you already touched upon it briefly, but one of the things we also always love to inquire about is were there any guest stars and, of, of course, directors during Space Above and Beyond that you liked working with? Yes, and I wish I had given more thought to that before we got here because I'm kind of on the spot. Um, our, our directors were eclectic, and uh, some some directed more than one episode. Um, I didn't, as a rule, work with that many guest stars. Um, we had them, and I got to meet them, but I didn't have scenes with them. Um, so that that's what was so, and that was okay with me. Um I, I, you know, right off the top of my head, I, I, I can't think of someone that I'd want to jump up and say, oh, yeah, remember that? I hated that guy. Or, yeah. <laughs> no, there wasn't anything like that. There wasn't. The yeah the the guest star that I'm um, I'm forgetting the actor's name you may have to look it up Rachel but you often had to play a, up against the the corporate stooge guy who oh yes sweet. and I knew him I knew him personally <laughs> I knew him for some years before and he plays an asshole very well I don't I don't know what you how you want to interpret that but he, <laughs> you know <laughs> no he, he, I've known I've known him for a number of years He's yeah nice. he. He was a favorite of ours, and even the sh the show dispenses with his character with no love. It's just like, oh, he burns to death, and we move on. But just it's, God, um, a lot of conversation with other actors kept coming back to uh, the director Thomas Wright as one that really worked well. I can't, I don't know if you if he was one of the directors that you had to be I, working I, under. I, I enjoyed working with Tom, and uh, because he repeated 
we got to know each other a bit. And Tom had been to war as well. And um, Tom, Tom was, you know, just just easily one of my favorite directors. Uh, we, we got along very well and communicated well, I thought. Yeah, because the others mentioned like his experiences um, with war really did help uh, them as actors and help them connect with the material better, and right. him being able to put some insight into the yep. into what they were doing. And, and, and they might have understandably felt more comfortable going to their director than to me, because at that point we didn't have a really a personal relationship yet. Mm. But no, like you said, there was an eclectic amount. Uh, Charles Martin Smith was a director too. That's also an actor, and he mm -hmm. uh, did a, a few. I think he did. I can't remember. I think he did one of the ones that you were in as well. Like I, I think was, maybe the... was it was it Pearly? Char I remember Charlie Martin Smith. I yeah. can't remember which episode it was that he did though. I, I think he did the Farthest Man from Home, which is the first one, like the oh. first episode that is in the pilot, oh. the first one with you in it. I'm pretty sure he did one of those early ones. But yeah, he was. He was around. Um, another thing is you would get incredible lines, like incredible lines, some funny lines, like back and forth in the final episode, you get one of the most quoted for, yeah. for us, which is uh, the whole, I get the wild cards, shuffle Shut up the wild cards, cards and, and deal them. And were there any specific moments or lines or scenes or, or special somethings that best sums up the character of Ross for you? Well, I, I love both Jim and Glenn. As I said, the relationship is singular in my career, uh, and I would do anything for them. Um, as in point of fact, I went on to do the film The One with with Jim after we had um, done Space and um, other uh, other opportunities that came along. But I remember the day I went in to do ADR work for The One, I was awakened in the morning by my niece in New York saying, it's okay, Uncle Tuck. Uh, he wasn't in the in the tower. He was in Newark. I said, "What are you talking about?" And then I turned on the TV and realized this was nine eleven. And I went into a studio here in Los Angeles and did my ADR work for the film The One and the opening narration while on the screen on the monitor. The World Trade Center was on fire. I lived for eight years across the street from the World Trade Center in Battery Park City. It was incredibly personal to me. And it just seems surreal that I'm watching this as I'm doing what seems a little bit less important. But I realized it's not Los Angeles and the movie's got date, you know, deadlines and it's got to be done. So get it done and then go home and try to get your head clear about it. But, I, I, I you know, much of my work seems to have little grace notes like that of, you know, pivotal times that sort of allow you to put a bookmark in there and say, oh, yeah, I remember when I was doing that. That's what was going on. Um, the series had a lot of action set pieces, uh, and you were the one that never got thrown into them because yeah, of you your role. Yeah, you stuck back on the Saratoga. And that, that was going to be the second season, doggone it. <laughs> we're going to ask, were you thankful for that, or did you want a piece of the action oh, I too? I want to go on the boonies. I want to hunt the boonies with the kids. <laughs> because James Morrison said the same thing too, where it's like he wanted to get in on the action, so they eventually wrote it that he did, and then, and then he hurt himself a lot, and then it's like, I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> like break a rib just to get in. You know, the circumstances would be very uncommon that the commander of the space station or the spaceship would go out and in the boonies. That, but even so, I know our writers could have figured it out. 
that would have been great fun. I would love to do that. Have you done much stuff like that during your career? Have you had to do not much? a lot of physical, not a lot of physical work, sadly. I mean, I'm I was a paratrooper. I'm uh, well, I was a, a good athlete. Uh, I'm pretty. I was pretty agile, and um, I, I would have enjoyed having the opportunity to be more physical, but not not really so much. I was I was more in demand for my. Um, the fact that I could speak different languages and have an energy and tell people to jump and they would say how high. Yeah. As an actor, you, you have an immense skill at making what could be very, um, you know, perfunctory or, or, or yeah. standard or boring stuff very interesting. Like your You go that extra step to make sure that they're three-dimensional, which a lot of other guest spot actors don't... Or can struggle yeah. with. Because like, like you said, like with something like Contact or Space... You're the guy standing behind the console talking about like the stuff that's happening, but you you bring such a verve to it that it, it's just it's really engaging. And space, as we all know, um, was not a darling and not a love for the network. There was stuff no, happening. Fox really didn't seem to to like space above and beyond on the whole, and and maybe somewhat resented it being that having that title of being the most expensive it show on television. It was a stepchild. Mm. And it was a stepchild at a time when Fox had just gotten the NFL contract. And regrettably, as they looked for a night to put it on, games would go over time and so it wouldn't air in certain markets in the country. And people couldn't find it. It was on Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, you know. It would move all over the place. If you were trying to find a way to sabotage something, you couldn't have done worse than uh, take that game plan that Fox utilized. That's the you know that's the luck of the draw. Sorry about that. That's what happened. Yeah. Mm. And did all of that stuff? Did did you did you guys feel that or notice that while making the show as oh, it went along? Well, we had no. We I think right up until the time we shot the final episode. We were looking forward to next season. I mean, you know, we were looking forward to next season. I, I, I want. I was. The writers were telling me, "Okay, we're going to do this and this and this." And Ross is going to get to get hot. Damn! Okay, I can't wait. <laughs> so it came as somewhat of a shock, and the reality was that, as I said, Warner and Paramount were both interested in picking it up, and Fox kept us to our contracts until it was a week too late for either one of them to pick it up, and then they canceled us. It was very much spiteful dog in a manger. No, we don't want it, but we don't want you to have it either. So how did you find out that it was canceled? I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, I'm sure it was a disappointing day, but I don't have any particular roadmaps in my memory that say, well, sorry about that. I just, oh, thank goodness, I wouldn't, I, that's like remembering the death of something dear to you, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you have told us a bit, but what, what what are your thoughts or what do you know of what would have happened to Ross in the future? And you being a, a, would you have been on as a series regular? Would you have wanted to do that? And because I was saying to- I was Would talk- you have finally gotten into those opening credits properly? Yeah, because I was talking to Joel. I'm like, yeah, Tucker never gets into the opening credits. And yet you're like one of the, you become like one of the main people in the, in the series. And it's yeah, like- Yeah, you're, you're a very to- important character. I had a special thing, you know, also starring Tucker Smallwood, which was very generous of, of Jem and Glenn. They didn't have to do that. As I said, I went from- uh, day player to guest star to special guest star to series regular. 
uh, it was the first time in my life I had been a series regular. Um, and I've been an actor for over 24 years. I have had my own shows. Um, I was a co-star with Joe Beth Williams on Channel Walkie, and I was an Emmy-nominated host of a Newsnet magazine show, Channel to the People in New York, and I was on a soap opera uh, for years. I did a while of soap opera. God, seven or eight of them. Um, but th this was, uh, uh, you know, there was a time when I had a show on every week, and that's the time when we only had three networks. We had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and I had a show on each of those channels every week, which is just uncommon. Um, you know, I, I don't know how, how else, what else you can say about that. Uh, how about that? <laughs> so, but this was back in a time when we didn't have 200 channels uh, available to us. So other than... Like, so you told us that in the second season, if there was going to be one, we would have found out a little bit more about like Ross's backstory. How, how, like... how Ross and, 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 and Ty um, had a relationship in the past. Yes. How we first met. And that would have been great fun. Yeah, because in the first season in Eyes, the one where they have the UN on board and they're doing mm -hmm. loyalty tests. That's the one where they really hammer in that you guys have had a previous yeah, relationship. Yeah, you, you have a history and a strong friendship. Yeah, and, and it was it was it was good to know because I didn't even think that we would necessarily get a, like an explanation of like or anything further because within just what we've got the twenty three episodes, the chemistry between you two actors felt like enough. Like oh, I like they if they tell us that'll be awesome, but just these two, the way they they interact and like chuckle at each other's jokes like there's the great in the angriest angel the whole uh, exchange about like i'll be a son of a bitch if you don't come back it's like we'll talk about the state of your mother later and you crack up which is yeah. just one of those things that is wonderful but um as the show like went away or wrapped up did you get the chance to keep anything from the show take anything from the set or keep anything around i had i'm sorry this is a point of of, of unhappiness i was i've been an advocate for treatment of ptsd since 1988 when i got help and i was a board member of an organization called the soldiers project which provided counseling to veterans with ptsd and to their families and it was open-ended and it was free and it was private the va is cares not private most of these people don't want their employees or their neighbors or their families to have a chance to see what they're going through. We did very important work. And I was in the process of fundraising. I I, I, I said, I will do matching grants. You can bid on my scripts and you can bid on my fly jacket and you can bid on my coffee mug. And I gave them all up. And I was grateful that fans had something from the show. I don't have any mementos anymore. And at the time I did that, the people that we had hired to administrate it knew that we were going to fail and we're going under, but they didn't say anything to me. I don't miss the money. I miss the things. They were they were very, very dear to my um to me. And I'm and I'm sad. Uh, but I blame them. I blame those people, the, uh, the the staff who knew that I was doing this and said, no, it's okay, don't you know, you can send us some money, but don't send your, don't send your damn, you know, souvenirs away. Well, I did, and I'm happy. As I say, I'm happy for the fans, and I, and I thank the fans 
that bid on them quite spiritedly, and I matched the funds, and it wasn't enough, so it goes. Yeah. Um, do you have any particular favorite moments or, or memories about working on the series as we wrap this up, as you look back on the on the whole entire thing? Gosh. Hmm. Probably an abstract one. I was in my dressing room one day um, and between scenes, and I called my home answering machine, and it was friends from New York from years gone by, Arlen and, and um, Jerry Jamont on the message saying, Tucker, we watch the show every week, man. We love this show. And, and by the way, the CD came out last month. The, the what? Um, I had recorded a blues album in 1984. That was, um, at that time, what, 12, 13 years before. And um, it was great fun, and it was awfully good. And I was very proud of it, but, you know, the circumstances led to it not being successfully released, and so we went on with our lives. Uh, and suddenly they had, it, it's all Robert Johnson's music. In fact, Jim and Glenn had paid the dues for a poster of Robert Johnson that I had in my cabin. I have it downstairs. You can't see it anymore because it's faded. The light has just faded it completely. But um, th that's, and they were going to get me a, 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 a resonator guitar for the second season <laughs> that I could play slide with. Uh, I, I, you know, I just, I just loved some of the, the generosity and, and the uh, willingness to accommodate and enrich um, the character. So, that 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 moment, more than any other, stands out to me as like what? <laughs> and, you know, and this was the beginning of, of the internet. You know, um, AOL gave us all accounts because all the fans wanted to talk to us, and if we had AOL accounts, we could do that. And so they gave us all AOL. Otherwise, they, Tucker, you got all this fan mail, this great email. Okay, well, where is that? Uh, it's on the internet. Okay, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> and now that and now that's and now that's commonplace for yeah. every show to have like that online presence. Yeah. That we live in the age of social media, where like we can just message you and say, "Hey, Tucker, I really loved your work on Space Above and Beyond. I really loved your work on Star Trek." I, I always looked at I always looked at it as a uh, as a scientific or technical kind of stage door thing when you come off stage after a performance and people were waiting for you in the lobby or outside hey i really enjoyed your work tonight thank you thank you thanks for coming um it it made our show more immediate that's theater's immediate after you know hours after minutes afterwards filming tv you can do it in june and it might not air till the following january so it's very abstract but to come off in that weekend and say, hey, you want to talk to James and Tucker and Morgan and Joel? And yeah, okay, that'd be kind of cool. And so they kind of spoon fed me. I didn't know what the internet was or what email was or any of that stuff. But they wanted so much to interact with us that they kind of, taught, what do you call it, tutored. They tutored us. Yeah. They tutored and me. James is pretty sophisticated. Joel was too, but I was what is this? And now look how things have changed. Like I follow your Facebook page, which I love very much. And out of all the Space Above and Beyond cast, you're the one that's one of the more, more active online and, and talking about your your career, your life, your views on things and interacting with folks. I, I think 
years back I listened to an interview of yours on the Babylon pod, Babylon 5 podcast and they were talking about your Facebook group. I'm like, oh, i got to check that out. And I've been following it for years. I love seeing, you know, pictures of your past and like you, you, you've got a lovely one of you and a big cat that I love so much. And um, uh, are there any particularly memorable fan interactions over the years from for Space Above and Beyond? And of course, any other projects as well. But we want to know with Space, has there been any lovely fan interactions that you well, can the, recall. The, the, uh, inner, the, the um, gatherings over the years were always special to deal with. You know, we were guests of that fan base. And at one point, in, I went over from England to Amsterdam for a couple of days because the fan base there had gathered together and organized it. And I, it was so close. It was easy enough for me to do it. And I was happy to do it. It's, I, I've always loved sci-fi fans. They're passionate. They're knowledgeable, they're thoughtful, they're intelligent. And uh, I can't, you know, you don't, I don't remember any stupid questions that I've ever gotten from a, a sci-fi base. Um, so those, that was part of the cheese, if you will. You know, um, cheese is the metaphor of rats in a maze. And well, why would you go down here? Because there's cheese, dummy. Um, so that was, the interaction with the fans is very much a part of the cheese. I, I enjoyed that when I went to Germany, I have a minor in German. I, I spent two years in college in Germany. Um, to get to go to these places and interact with those fans is singular. It's just very, very cool. Mm. That's very sweet. <laughs> uh, I guess another question that I have is just, are there any other behind-the-scenes stories that you would like to share with us? Probably, but maybe not just now. I'm sorry, Rachel. It's I'm at an interesting cusp in my life uh, between the pandemic and world events and my advancing age. I am at the end rather than the beginning of a journey, and so I, and as I share these memories with you, it, it allows me to look back and say, "Boy, what a what a wild, strange trip it's been," and it has been. But my, my work is behind me now, by and large. I can write, and I will continue to write, and I will continue to opine, and I will hope to dodge the slings and arrows of those who I piss off, <laughs> uh, the, the uh, magas of the world, and I will be sure to make a special effort to piss them off. Um, but not, not really. Um, my blues is important to me and I'm starting to go out and play at some of these open mics. Um, I enjoy that very much. And there's just, even today, I mean, 40 some years later, there's not a lot of people that play the music of men that look like me from a hundred years ago. Uh, Robert Johnson, Mississippi, John Hurt, Sunhouse, um, Charlie Patton, uh, Brownie McGee, the, the, you know, the old blues men that played in juke joints on Saturday nights and traveled around and shacked up and um, fought and drank and, you know, stole each other's music. Um, they are very colorful characters, uh, and uh, I enjoy that music. And um, I'm one of the few people of color that have gravitated to it. Uh, Kev Moe is a wonderful, wonderful musician. Uh, and there are a handful of folks like that, but uh, there weren't many black people to teach me how to play this music when I was interested in. Uh, they were white and Jewish. 
uh, and I'm grateful to them all. They revered this music and they respected it and valued it enough to learn to do it scientifically with tablature, with breaking it down technique-wise. And I'm grateful for that. Yes, I um I have been really loving being able to look at a bit more of your musical side of your of your career because many people would know you for for your acting and even in in space or other things your your musicality does get to bleed into the acting and at least for for myself the the rhythm that you use with your voice in a lot of roles has a very very specific it's, cadence it's, almost musical. Yes, mm. I, I found that all characters have a cadence. And finding that cadence helps me find the heart of the character. With um, space, we we've kind of gone over this a bit already, but it definitely is a series that we feel doesn't get enough of that attention and praise, and it was cut down in its time. And you've been a part of so many things over the years, and and we kind of said this at the at the start of this, but it's definitely one that holds a very special place and, and reverence for yourself within your career. But uh, what would you say was the big takeaway for you with the show, the message, the theme, the point that it made that you walk away with? Cherish what is good and what is special because they don't last. That's a... Beautiful way to sum it up, and, and that especially hits with that final episode of of the series as well, where you and and McQueen basically have a conversation like that uh, with him having to be wheeled off, and you feeling the guilt of it all. But um, Rachel, you have a one of our last questions here for us that is moving away from from space more to some yeah. other stuff in Tucker's career. So if. Uh- somebody walks up to you and starts a question by saying, oh, it's such a shame that it didn't get recognition, but I loved you in blank. What would you expect that blank to be? Would you expect it to be space above and beyond? Probably. probably. I mean, contact was a lovely experience. I'm told told that I was the first actor to make us in every cast without meeting. It was based upon the audition that I did on tape, and that was very flattering. Um, but it would probably be space because it was so singular and because it was so short-lived. Mm. Um, you-, you know, there are, I've done things that you always have hopes, aspirations when you do anything, um, and sometimes they come true and sometimes their reach exceeds your grasp. Um, but Space had all of the basic fundamental constituents of something that deserved to grow and be nurtured. And it didn't, didn't have, that wasn't its karma, that that wasn't its destiny. So I can look back over a career of well over 50 years and say, yeah, that, that, that's too bad. Uh, you know, I did. I've done an awful lot of roles. I don't feel that way about many of them saying, "Oh, gee, I wish I did some more." Or, you know, come on, okay, this, you know, there's not that much difference. But Ross was as a character singular for me, and uh, it's not often that I have the chance to work with people who respect the tradition of the character that I'm playing and value me as a human being to express it. That's that's pretty singular. 
You have been in so many things. You have done so many things over the course of your career. And I have noticed that slowly but surely there's been a larger buildup towards comedic roles, comedic performances. Uh, in my opinion, you're in one of the greatest comedy films of all time, which is Black Dynamite, one of my absolute favorites. I think it's one of the best. And I was just... Uh, Ryan, I don't think of myself as a, as a comic actor. There are a number of them, and I love it. I'm a good straight man. Mm-hmm. I, I, can, I can do that, I think. I can play authentic um, authority figures, etc. I can play them authentically and let them bounce their comedy off of me. I don't have that knack, that, that ear, that rhythm for those, for those lines. And I love... It's like setting... You know, it's like blocking... It's like setting up the spike. I'm happy to do that. Yeah, a bit, but still, like that is a part of the comedy of just how mm. straight you are. Like yeah. in something like the Sarah Silverman program, where you play God, and there's just so much <laughs> absurdity because you are playing it like, yes, I am God, but also you're just a you know a tank top, and you've just and and I was just wondering, like, has that been a, a conscious thing on your part, or has that just been how things have worked out that you've been getting a part of more uh, comedic projects over the years, whether you find yourself to be the comedic actor or just the straight man. I I don't think I ever reached the prominence or the, 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 um, the have the juice to make those kind of choices. Um, I, you know, when things are available and they come to me and they want to meet with me or whatnot, then I'm happy. Um, but I, I've never had that kind of leverage in this business. I've been a soldier of fortune, and I, I that was okay with me. Yeah, so is that just sort of how you ended up becoming one of those that, that guy actors, where it's just like, oh, I know well, his face in this. If, if, if space had gone on to have four or five seasons, and I would be that guy. But I never did a, a role for that kind of duration. So, you know, no, um, if, if, if um, people remember, oh, that's Tucker. Yeah, I remember him from Contact, or I remember him from, um, you know, Sarah Silverman. Um, but, uh, you know, again, this is an absurd profession. Uh, I don't envy the kids that have gotten into it. They've changed the rules a lot. I have a comfortable life. I'm a dinosaur. I'm a middle-class actor. They just don't exist anymore. It's like this haves and have nots. And anyone who does all the work I've done won't enjoy my pensions. They change the rules. So I'm grateful I came along at a time when I got to do it and didn't have to feel like I sold my soul down the river or subverted my character to do it. Um, I got to do what I wanted to do. I enjoyed doing what I did. I have to kiss anybody's ass. Never had to do something because I had to do it. Uh, I did things that I wanted to do and turned down things I didn't want to do. There are some characters I won't, I don't want to portray. I don't want to be the image of that quality uh, for viewers. I just don't want to do it. I don't respect it. Mm. Uh, and it's not that he's, it's not that he's so good or he's so evil. I don't mind that. I'll, I'll find a way to validate him. It's that he's someone who is contemptible or um, demeaning. I don't need anybody's money to have to do those. And I'm grateful if I had a kid in college, you know, or a $2,000 a month mortgage, maybe I'd have to feel differently, but I don't. Mm. 
And I, 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 you know, as someone who really appreciates uh, performances, big or small, I really have to thank you for the work that you do and actors of your caliber do, because many people may, in fact, overlook it. But I always am appreciative of those recurring faces, those recurring voices, yeah. like I said at the beginning. Like, And, and that's when- why you made us do the, the spotlight in particular to sort of take time to look at those actors in B5 and what they brought and what what qualities and they I, gave. I do have to agree a bit. I feel like things have changed a bit where, uh, like, in the 90s, there was, like, that staple of, like, oh, that character actor is in this episode, so you know it's going to be good. Like, oh, it's, it's Tucker, it's Tucker Smallwood, oh, it's Ron Canada, or it's this or this or this person always appearing. But I just want to, again, thank you for the work that you do, big or small, because it brings so much joy to, to us to be able to to see you pop up and be like, oh, he's going to, you, you, there's just a mark of assurance of like, yes, this is going to be good. Tucker's always one of those reliable people. And I do feel like it has changed a bit in the industry in that regard. Mainly it's like a lot of Canadian actors now because they film a lot of stuff up in, in Canada. Yeah. But um, do you, um, with uh, your uh, acting career and just general uh, position in the industry, do you have any exciting things coming up for you? Do you have any shows or movies or, or plays or, or no, music? In, 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 in three weeks, I'll be 80. That's what's coming up for me. Um, <laughs> as I say, um, you know, the, 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 the band has come through, the parade has come through, and it's moved on. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I was happy to march in the parade for a while, and I'm happy that I've got a life. The, the, what you see behind me is where my command post was in Vietnam. Uh, I went back in, in 2004, and on Christmas Day, I went to this place, which is where I, which is where I um, conducted war for some time. And I, I look at it and I see no more sandbags, no more barbed wire, no more craters. It is Eden again. Um, I would hope that, you know, all the trauma that I've had in my life and whatnot, they'll be able to look back and say, oh, okay, it's, 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 it's peaceful again. It's quiet. It's Eden. Hmm. You, you mentioning of Eden, you have got a book about your experiences and the stuff that you have uh, talked about through this. And uh, following your social media, there's been conversation about audiobook recording stuff for that as well, if I'm not mistaken. I, 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 I had both. They're both available now on Amazon or, or Audible or whatnot. Um, my therapy with Vic in 1988, he said, I want you to write down everything you can remember. Don't judge it. Don't censor it. Write it down. And that therapy became my way of expressing. I discovered my knack was for essays. I've had a very eclectic life. I've enjoyed it. I enjoy describing it. Um, I don't. I love fiction. I love good fiction. I just don't write it very well, uh, so I'm happy to read other people's fiction. I'll tell you about the day I had today, and I might make you smile or go. <gasps> um, and I enjoy. That's why Facebook is a, an ideal medium for me. It lets me comment on the day, um, and so that that has worked out. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, this time that we got to chat together. Um, I hope. At some point, this will be 
made available to some of the other people that follow my Facebook page. And, and Rachel Ryan, I thank you very much for, for asking, for inviting me to, to be with you. Oh, no, yes. we were both so excited that you said yes, because uh, as Ryan said multiple times, we are a really big fan of you and your work. So it's um, really nice to be able to speak with you directly. And about your time on this series, when we were reviewing the episodes ourselves, one of the things that really was overwhelming for, for us is this this like i guess again appreciation of this is one of the times where you got to really be in the spotlight like you really got to command a lot of stuff on yeah. television because i you know most of the time i'm used to seeing you be the guest star or the one that walks in and comes in and maybe does some minor occurring stuff but in space i was we were just talking so often about like it must have been so great for for Tucker to have a character that dictates so much of what happens in the mm. given stories too in, in truth, Brian, it was I, I understand just what you're saying, but I can't think of ever having had that mindset. It's certainly understandable. My mindset was, isn't it great that I'm getting to play someone who has my values and I can play them authentically because I don't think I've seen this character a lot in much of the work that I've seen. So isn't this special? Mm. Yeah, you know, mm. I, even then I knew how singular it was. Uh, and, and Jim and Glenn saying, you know, you came along and you did this and then you became this and you became this and you became this. That's not a very common path. That's very uncommon. And so I, I knew how, again, how unique, how singular it was. And um, I didn't let it pass me by um, oblivious to it. I, I valued it in real time. Again, this series had so many on like what you would assume are uncommon things. Like this is a one season show that got cancelled, and yet we can still talk to and see as well that the people involved would continue to be in each other's lives. Like you said, this this family where I, I follow your social media, it's like, oh, there's you and James going golfing still. And it's like, oh, that's lovely. And you get to be a part of other projects that 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 the writers did, like yeah, lasting connections, like with James, uh, like with um Glenn Morgan and, and Jim Wong. Like after th this, they went back to X Files. I think it's like one of the first episodes they they had you in it, like, and it's one of the highest rated and grossest episodes of the <laughs> X Files too. Home, it's like an infamous episode. Yes. Yeah, Chris said it's the most, it's the single most notorious episode of the series. And you got to. And I remember that. going to get a pizza. When this messenger brought the script to me and I went to order a pizza and the woman behind the register says, are you okay? Because <laughs> apparently every now and then, goes, oh, God. Oh, oh, no, God. And then, Jim, is this what you think of me? This is what you want to do to me? I, I, that's so tickled me because she was so concerned. Are you okay? And um, the series that I would love to revisit, but I remember dearly, is Millennium, which you also got to do a bit of, and you got to play like an interesting little character in that too. That was that was fun too, and you got to whistle a bit and have a, a bit of joy. There, that's like that's another one where I feel like although that series got like four seasons, that one's kind of buried as well. I don't know what it is about mm. some of those kind of Fox shows where they just kind of hide them away. But I, I'm just glad. Uh, I think of Jim and Glenn as my godfathers. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that our, our paths crossed because they've written some of the richest roles I've had the opportunity to create. So, hmm. well, that's uh, all we have to 
say and do here, isn't it, Rachel? You don't have anything else that you want to... I'm curious. You said that like your big plans is turning 80. Do you have anything planned for your birthday? There are a number of possibilities, but not really. I don't... I mean, my family wants me to do something, and my shrink wants me to do something. I'm, I'm just not sure how I'll feel. Um, hmm. You know, we'll, we'll see when we get there. Yeah. That's fair. Well, is there anything else we want to bring up here? Anything else you want to tell us, Tuck? Anything else Probably, you want to... We'll, we'll save that for Chapter 2. We'll save that for chapter two. That's exactly right. When, when they bring back space and you get the, and you get the musical episode where you get to you play all the songs. Um, we threatened that with Morgan. He was like, "Oh well, if Tuck's playing the guitar, then sure, I'll do it." But I don't like musicals. <laughs> but, uh, but no, this is such a, a, a joyous time for us. Like space has been our favorite show that we've had to cover. It was such a a rich show. The writing was really intriguing and. We have seen so much of science fiction television really uh, take off in the direction that space was doing at the time. Mm. We talk about that a lot, like Battlestar Galactica and uh, The Expanse and so many others would start to tap into what this series was doing in the 90s. It feels very pivotal in the genre when you look back. And um, again, it's so great to to talk to you. And uh, you were my favorite character in the show. I, I loved, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it, but... The strawberry speech. When you get the script, <laughs> when you get the script for that episode, and there's a big, there's a big speech where you have to talk about strawberries, and somebody <laughs> took them, and you want them back. That again goes into what you were saying, where it's like your comedy is being the straight man figure. Mm. Like the humor there is just one of those. And I, I just had to mention that if that was a, a particular favorite moment for us, if it stood out for you as well, because it's just uh, among them, it was a reference to a Humphrey Bogart character, and you know the Tame Mutiny. Mm-hmm. And so I, I lo- our our writers were very eclectic and very imaginative, and they would throw on little Easter eggs every now and then, and people didn't always get them, but they're in there. You'll mm-hmm. see them the second or third time through. Maybe you'll pick it. Oh, son of a gun! <laughs> well, that is all from us. Thank you, everyone, for for tuning in and or watching this. Uh, you can follow us on the social medias under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast. We have our Patreon in which we have other material, other content that you can uh, pay to get and support us and be a part of our community on Patreon, Yum Yum Podcast on Patreon. And uh, Tucker, you have your social media of Facebook. People can just uh, look you up there or, or just Tucker Small. It's a public page. You can stop by and take a peek. If you don't make an ass of yourself, you'll be welcome. There you go. So everyone, make sure to check out Tucker's stuff. I'll make sure to include a link in this. It's well worth uh, following. I've gotten great enjoyment out of it over the years. It's, like I said, the I, I really love... Uh, you know, actors and being able to to follow them like in this age of the internet and talk to them and get their views on stuff can be very very exhilarating. And if you're a fan of the craft, uh, whether it's of music or acting, definitely follow Tucker's stuff because you'll get some insights on that too. But uh, until next time, everyone, make sure to be kind to each other and uh, we remember Pags always. <laughs> uh, Tucker Pags was R. a character in the pilot the, that died, and they all toast to Pags. He's a character yeah. that was a member of the 58th that they all remember, and we remember too because that was like what Space did was they were willing to sacrifice members of the crew to really heighten the like to really bang in the point there, that there are stakes. They they have that courage. Yes. So, R.I.P. Pags. Here's the Pags. <laughs>